Uh, good afternoon. Uh, everyone can take your seats. We'll uh, get this panel started. My name is Brink Lindsay. I'm Vice President for Research uh, here at the Cato Institute. Uh, and in this hour, we're going to be talking uh, about immigration and entrepreneurship. Uh, as you will learn from our panelists, uh, immigrants are disproportionately entrepreneurial uh, relative to native-born Americans. Uh, this occurs at both sides of the skill spectrum. Uh, at lower skill levels, uh, you see uh, immigrants more likely to start their own businesses, often uh, out of necessity. That is, uh, they have fewer formal employment opportunities uh, with limited language skills, et cetera. Uh, fewer social networks to plug into uh, to get regular employment, so more likely uh, to go into business in small-scale uh, fashion. Um, <clears throat> at the top end, uh, we have people drawn into our uh, vibrant uh, uh, startup system uh, from all over the world. We attract talent from all over the world, uh, and as you will hear, uh, a disproportionate share of high-tech businesses uh, feature uh, foreign-born founders or co-founders. Uh, and so uh, at both poles uh, of the skill spectrum, uh, <clears throat> immigrants are figuring uh, importantly uh, and making an outsized contribution uh, to business formation. Um, the panelists will go into more details as to why this is the case, but at, uh, at the very root of things is the fact that uh, being an immigrant uh, is uh, in the nature of things uh, to be entrepreneurial. Uh, what are entrepreneurs? They're people who opportunistically take risks in pursuit of financial gain, and that's what immigrants do. They hurl themselves uh, out of uh, the countries they were born into and away from everybody they know and go to a foreign country in search of a new life. That's a pretty entrepreneurial act, uh, and so they take that habit of mind with them uh, when they're uh, engaging in economic activity uh, here in the United States. Uh, to fill us in more uh, about these connections, uh, we have two uh, uh, <clears throat> speakers with uh, lots of relevant expertise. Uh, I will introduce, uh, we have Magnus Lofstrom uh, from the Public Policy Institute of California um, and Meg Bloom Cahote from Colgate University. Uh, let me introduce Magnus first since he will be speaking first. He's a senior fellow at the Public Policy Institute of California. His areas of expertise include public safety, immigration, entrepreneurship, and education. Uh, his recent work examines uh, crime trends in California, uh, recidivism, California's jail capacity and construction needs. He holds appointments as research fellow at the Institute for the Study of Labor in Germany. He's a community scholar at the uh, Julian Samora Research Institute at Michigan State uh, and a research associate at the Center for Comparative Immigration Studies uh, at UC San Diego. Um, he serves on the editorial board of Indi Industrial Relations. Um, prior to joining PPIC, he was a professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. Uh, and he received his PhD from UC San Diego. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Magnus Lobster. Thanks, Frank. And uh, thanks, uh, Alex and, and Kato, for uh, including me in this uh, program here and giving me this opportunity to share a little bit about uh, the work I've been doing on uh, immigrant entrepreneurship. And, uh, it's a little bit discouraging with the uh, introduction here from, from Brink because he really summarized what I'm going to be saying here. So there's not really going to be a whole lot of new stuff coming <laughs> up over the next 20 minutes, but at least I get to get into some uh, details here. Um, so let me start off with a little bit of an uh, introduction and motivation here to this topic of entrepreneurship. Um, I'm going to start off with a quote from a 
highly respected labor economist, Ed Lassier, who said the entrepreneur is the single most important player in the economy. Um, and it wasn't really anything new, that notion, uh, to be honest, that was something that goes all the way back to Adam Smith. Uh, and the basic idea here is that the entrepreneur plays a very important role um, in small businesses, in young firms, and in business startups. And these are really the key engines uh, when it comes to job creation, innovation, and, and economic growth. So nothing too controversial there. Um, and also, as Brink pointed out, it's not, you know, there's this common perception that immigrants are particularly entrepreneurial as well. Um, and that is true if we look at uh, business ownership, business startups, as well as innovation. And there's a strand of uh, research that supports this, and some of it will have cited here probably a number of times in the next uh, hour or so. Um, so there's that component of it that speaks a lot about the contributions of entrepreneurship or immigrant entrepreneurship in the US economy. There's another um, aspect of it as well that I think is potentially very important. That is the, uh, the labor market integration of immigrants themselves coming here to this country might face some hurdles and barriers into formal employment. And then the self-employment, business ownership, uh, provide an opportunity to then uh, uh, get upward mobility in itself. And Given that we've seen here today a lot of examples, a lot of data that points towards the changes in the economy that the U.S. Ex has experienced since um, basically the late 1970s, where uh, information technology is uh, getting more prevalent. We have a technology uh, skill bias change, as labor economists often describe it as. And it's creating limited opportunities for low-skilled workers. So I want to take a look at, um, at the low-skilled self-employment side of things. And that's what I'm going to be fo focused on here. And I want to look at possible contri contributions then. First, I want to start off with looking at the number of self-employed immigrants. And then I want to move on to uh, looking at earnings being the measure that I can use here. Uh, one way to look at the possible contributions, uh, as well as giving us some ideas of what kind of tool this might be uh, for low-skilled uh, immigrants in the US. Um, First off, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start off trying to uh, uh, shed some light on this question. And how do immigrants contribute to recent U.S. self-employment trends? And I think you're going to see that there are some surprising things there. Well, at least they were to me, and maybe they, won't, they will not be to you. Um, and then, broadly speaking, what I'm going to try to shed light on is this question of, so is self-employment an economically rewarding option for low-skilled immigrants? Um, and then I'm going to look at earnings, basically, to see, well, to what degree um, do we see evidence of success that are realized by immigrants um, who have relatively low levels of education? That's, I'm going to call them low skilled, and that's not necessarily true. What is going to be true is that they're relatively low educated. They lack a high school diploma, uh, who actually chose self-employment. The way that I'm going to do this is by comparing them to observationally similar US-born worker who also observed as being self-employed. And I'm going to compare them also to other immigrants who are in the wage salary sector. So that's, those are the research questions that I want to um, try to address here. And the way I'm going to do this, the data I'm going to be using is something that a number of people today have used already. It's data from the census, from the 2000 census, as well as from the American Community Survey from 2005 to uh, 2014. 
when I say self-employed, I'm simply going to use the question in these surveys uh, where the individual report being self-employed in either a not incorporated business or an incorporated business. As I said, low skilled here. Uh, what I really am talking about is low education, don't have a high school education. Um, I want to capture a population that is actively involved in the labor market, so I'm going to restrict it to those folks who report usually working at least 15 hours. And in my talk here today, the outcome that I'll be focusing on is going to be total annual earned income. It's the sum of the annual uh, wage salary earnings and business income. And when you look at the data, you realize that even if you say you're self-employed, uh, a number of people actually have uh, business income as well. So um, well worth it if we're looking at this from the perspective of, of the economic well-being to um, actually include both of those. So the trends here. Um, what do we see? We see different trends uh, from 2000 to 2014 for immigrants and natives. So this is not just low skill. This is just the self-employment in general. And we see an almost doubling of the number of immigrants who are self-employed, from about 1.4 million in 2000 to 2.7 million in 2014. If we look at the US born, uh, we see an increase from 2000 to 2006 when it peaks over this period, when it goes from about 10 million to about 11 and a half million. But then it starts to drift down, uh, and it starts to come up a little bit in 2014, but you have a noticeable drop there from the peak to 2014, and there's not much change, actually, between 2000 and 2014 for U.S. born. Um, with these changes, uh, and we already heard that immigrants are overrepresented among the self-employed, uh, well, they're increasingly so as well. Um, and in 2000, which is relatively recent, we're looking at 16 years ago, um, about one in eight of the self-employed folks here in the U.S. were foreign-born. And then when we fast forward to 2014, the most recent year we have data for, we have slightly more than one in five. Uh, so that's a continuous, consistent growth in the share. So immigrants are increasingly important to self-employment and business ownership in the U.S. If we break this down and we look at it, uh, in the period before the Great Recession, because we have seen big structural, big changes happening with the Great Recession. So what I'm going to do is break this down, these changes, and the period before the Great Recession and the period after. And what we see is going between 2000 and 2007, we see strong growth in both the number of U.S.-born self-employed and the number of immigrants. One point, almost 1.4 million U.S.-born self-employed were added in that period of time, and almost 1 million immigrants. And that's pretty significant by itself, there, because we are talking about a population here that represented in this period maybe about 16% of the U.S. workforce. They added a little bit more than 40% of the self-employment numbers to the U.S. over that period. And it's essentially in a period of economic growth. Now when we go to the not-so-good time uh, after the Great Recession, we see a drop of almost 1.3 million U.S.-born self-employed and we see a continued increase in self-employment among immigrants of about 270,000. Overall, um, if we look at that period since 2000, um, the growth in self-employment in the U.S. is essentially an immigrant phenomenon. Uh, they account for 90% of the growth in self-employment, and I think this is, this is definitely something that is extremely noticeable and very surprising to me to see it's so uh, stark. Um, 1.3 million almost compared to uh, a little bit over 100,000 U.S. born self-employed that were added over that period of 14 years. 
All right. Um, if we then shift and we take a look at, well, there are different skill segments here. I'm going to be focusing on the low-skilled side of things. Um, what we see is that since that Great Recession, out of those 270,000 immigrants self-employed that we added here, um, a big number of those were actually those with less than the high school, about 117,000. You see that that is the biggest increase among immigrants, and that is the biggest increase of any group, because among all U.S. born, we saw drops, whether it was less than high school or college uh, uh, graduates. Another reason to think that low-skilled self-employment among immigrants is something worthwhile taking a close look, look at is if we uh, look at the share of self-employed. The uh, percentages have dropped out here, where it says cell range now instead of the actual percentages. Um, but what it would show is that more than 50% of the low-skilled self-employed are actually foreign-born. Uh, more than half, in other words, are foreign-born. So um, we're, not, we're talking about a relatively small number of self-employed compared to the college graduates, but clearly immigrants are overrepresented in that group. And if we had the percentages for the other education groups, we would have seen as well that immigrants are over, actually overrepresented in each of those groups as well. All right, so if we shift our focus and take a look at earnings, and before even getting to earnings, just to have a sense of you know, some of the characteristics of the low-skilled self-employment self-employed among immigrants, um, what do we see? We see a couple of things that stand out. A large proportion, uh, the majority, are not naturalized. Non-citizens among the self-employed here, the low-skilled foreign-born uh, self-employed, um, do not have citizenship, 72.5%. Um, the majority are from Mexico or Central America. And importantly, uh, a, the majority also only speak limited English. So these are the ones who report not speaking English and not speaking it well. Um, and they live, half of them live in just two states, California and Texas. So they're geographically concentrated as well. If we move on to um, median earnings, we see that the earnings are relatively low as well. Um, 17700 uh, per year compared to immigrants uh, who are in wage salary of 20,000, and if we compare it to US born self employed, it's also lower. They had 21,300. But I also showed you some differences. There are some other of these characteristics that might very well contribute to these differences. So I want to take a look at what contributes to the differences, what are the factors, and maybe we can identify uh, some of the hurdles that are most relevant. And uh, it's not going to be particularly surprising. But here's one thing. So I'm just going to estimate these uh, OLS regressions using log of total income. And using the log of total income as my uh, dependent variable means that we can almost, the, the, uh, you see that first immigrant coefficient of 0 0.069. It basically tells us that self-employed immigrants in this group here, because we're, I'm comparing, comparing US-born self-employed to immigrant self-employed. Immigrant self-employed have about 7% lower earnings than, than, for, um, than the US-born. Um, but I'm also separating this out by gender, and we see that there are differences between men and women, and there's actually not an earnings disadvantage among uh, women. If we then just simply take into account and account for the limited English proficiency among uh, the foreign-born population here, that shifts into an earnings advantage. Okay, so with that, immigrant men actually have higher earnings than, uh, than the US-born, low-skilled, uh, self-employed, and a noticeable uh, uh, advantage for women in that position. If we then add um, demographic characteristics, we control for these as well, then what we see is that that earnings advantage for immigrant 
uh, actually is even greater. But part of this is driven by longer work hours. Once we take that into account, the advantage drops down. And then importantly, I told you about that geographic concentration as well. When we take that into account as well, we don't find any evidence that there is statistically significantly higher earnings among low-skilled immigrant um, uh, self-employed compared to low-skilled US-born self-employed. Um, nonetheless, we have roughly the same uh, kind of earnings. What about if we compare low-skilled self-employed immigrants to um, uh, immigrants who are low-skilled and work in the wage salary uh, sector? Here again, we start off with seeing uh, an earnings gap. They have about, men have about a 6% uh, lower earnings compared to uh, US born. Um, for women, that gap is even greater. It's probably in the neighborhood of about 30%. Again, starting to add some controls. If we start by controlling for how long you've been in the US, whether you have naturalized, um, we actually see that those differences are greater once we account for that. Adding in uh, the demographic characteristics, that gap actually hasn't changed much. There isn't really that big of a difference between uh, wage salary immigrants and, and self-employed immigrants among the low-skilled. Um, and one of the things that if we looked at the data and we looked at the, earn, the, uh, the number of hours worked per week, we would see is that even though we often think that the self-employed work more hours, in this sample here, we have a greater proportion of wage salary low-skilled immigrants who work 40 hours or more than those in a similar position who are self-employed instead. So once we account for that, um, the, uh, the lower earnings are partly due to the fewer hours worked. And then lastly, uh, taking into account these geographic uh, distributional differences, what we come up with is they're still, they have low earnings. So accounting for all the factors that we're doing in these models here, we still see lower earnings among those who have chosen self-employment compared to observationally similar immigrants who are in wage salary. All right, so um, just to wrap up then here and conclude, um, what do we see here? Importantly, immigrants increasingly contribute to entrepreneurship. I think that we have had a sense for a long period of time and data has consistently shown that immigrants have higher rates of self-employment uh, business startups and so forth, and the data supports this and says that, well, it's even more so in recent time. Um, as I said, immigrants account for more than 90% of the growth in self-employment since 2000. And while we saw in the U.S. over this period between 2000 and 2014, a loss of almost 1.3 million U.S.-born self-employed, um, well, actually, since the Great Recession, immigrants actually added number of uh, self-employed by about 270,000. Um, and importantly then, it isn't, even though I've stressed the low-skilled side here, the increase is across all education group. Uh, but as I said, I've stressed the low-skilled because we have seen a noticeable increase there. Um, so altogether, if we just look at these very descriptive statistics, they certainly point towards a contribution of immigrants. Um, but whatever that magnitude is of the immigrant contribution to economic and job growth is, it, it quite clearly these data suggest that they would be quite significant. Um, if we shift over to the low-skilled side, well, the good news is we don't see that low-skilled self-employed immigrants have any lower earnings than similar, observationally similar US-born low-skilled self-employed workers. Uh, that's kind of the good news. But on the other hand, 
um, don't find evidence uh, that self-employment increases the economic well-being of most low-skilled workers. So again, what Brink was saying, uh, I think that what this is consistent with is that um, there's more of a push factor if we put it in that kind of context. Um, there's no higher earnings, uh, as I said. And most, in fact, if we actually look at, well, how much do they earn, they have quite low annual earnings. About 55% of these foreign-born workers who are reporting being self-employed earn 20000 or less. And as we all know, that would be very difficult to live off that kind of annual earnings. The key obstacle for success here is really limited English proficiency. So that's a big part. Um, and if we take this and look at it in the context of the relatively limited work that's been done on the low-skilled self-employment, these findings are consistent with that earlier work. There's work by uh, Rob Fairley and Chris Woodruff that is completely consistent with this. Um, and these are using, as well as some work that I've done myself, uh, these are updated data and they're using also different data. And we find very similar results. So these seems to be quite robust uh, relationships. Um, overall, I think it's fair to say that it's very difficult to find some negative effects, so much of a downside to uh, immigrant entrepreneurship. But having said that, the success that we are actually finding across the various literature that has looked at immigrant entrepreneurship um, uh, in terms of economic contributions, innovations, and so forth, it's really concentrated among the, the high skilled. And we have a number of papers that are pointing out to that. And then quite nicely, we're going to hear a little bit more about that particular sector next. All right, that's it. Thanks. Thank you, Magnus. Uh, our next speaker is Meg bloom uh, She is an economist, data scientist, policy analyst, and entrepreneur, currently serving as a uh, visiting professor uh, at the Economics Department of Colgate University. Her research examines intended and unintended consequences of government policies as they affect the scientific workforce, innovation, and entrepreneurial outcomes. Um, and Professor bloom uh got her PhD uh, from the RAND Graduate School. Please join me in welcoming Meg bloom -Cahoke. Good afternoon, and thank you very much for, uh, for having us here today. The work that I'm going to be talking about today is actually um, covered in a couple of publications that came out over the past year. And so I first need to acknowledge the funders and then also say that the usual caveats apply. Neither the Small Business Administration nor the National Science Foundation um, uh, should be taken to, to um, support anything that I'm about to say, uh, despite their, their generous support for this work. So you've already heard this um, from a few different places, but I think one of the reasons why it's important to be talking about entrepreneurship today when we're talking about the, the contributions of, of immigrants um, in the US workforce is because while we do know that, you know, the, from, our, from what we've seen this morning, that there do not seem to be negative wage effects, um, in particular in the long run, we've also seen some work that says there's increases in productivity. Now, some of those increases in productivity could be due to within-firm increases in productivity, especially if we have immigrants coming in who have complementary skills um, to the native US citizens who are already working in those firms. But another way that immigrants can contribute to the US economy in particular, and as Magnus was pointing out, it's in particular the, uh, the, these high-skilled entrepreneurs, is through job creation, through their own startup companies, through starting new businesses. 
So this is really going to be the focus of, of my talk today, is to look at business ownership, to look at startups. Specifically, we're going to be looking at, we're going to be defining entrepreneurship more sort of, um, more finely than self-employment broadly writ, to look at business owners, people who are heading up, who have founded incorporated um, uh, firms, or if they have unincorporated firms like LLCs or partnerships, um, these might be individuals who nonetheless have several employees as well. Um, so those who are unincorporated, non-employer, self-employed, it's sort of a long phrase, but, but those individuals, a lot of them may be doing freelance work, um, working as independent contractors, as it turns out um, in the data, and we'll talk more about this in a moment. Many of those individuals, especially after, uh, after the Great Recession, weren't necessarily choosing to be entrepreneurs, but rather were becoming entrepreneurs um, out, of more, out of necessity. And these are even among college graduates. We do know college-educated immigrants are more likely than native US citizens to start businesses. They are especially more likely to start these high-growth, high-tech um, businesses. And so if, what our, if we assume that one of our goals of immigration policy is to increase US employment rates, um, to increase the level of employment in the US, to stimulate economic growth through entrepreneurship, one of the things we might then begin to wonder is whether it's all immigrants that we would want to focus on or if there's any subgroup among immigrants who may be more or less likely to contribute towards these ends. So just as some background, um, I'll also be using uh, the, the word immigrants a little bit differently than, than some, um, some speakers have used it today. The distinction that I'll be making, like Magnus was making, is speaking of foreign-born, um, all those who are not native US citizens by birth. And then immigrants, I'll be specifically referring to legal permanent residents and to um, those who have naturalized US citizenship. For foreign nationals who are on temporary resident visas, who, do not, who are not immigrants, as I was just defining them, there are relatively few options for them uh, to participate, to, to become US business owners and participate in entrepreneurship under our current rules. Now, there was a new rule pr proposed last week, and we'll come back to that um, later on in the talk. But for example, the H-1B visa, which is for specialty occupations, those are um, for, for individuals who have bachelor's degrees, typically in STEM fields. That it would be a very difficult method for an uh, immigrant prospective entrepreneur, or sorry, foreign-born prospective entrepreneur to use because it requires that there be separation between the employer and the who's petitioning and the beneficiary of the visa, meaning that they would have to have a company that has a board that can hire them, the owner, fire them, the owner, um, that supervises them and pays them. Basically, they're, they're, it is possible to do, but, but there would need to be enough separation so that both the person, the, the employer who's petitioning for the H-1B visa is separated from um, the person who would be employed on that visa. So that's a very difficult ro road to go. A road that's much easier to go is with the E-2 treaty investor visas. Now, this require, does require some substantial financial investment up front. So that may preclude some people from participating. But the main restriction here is that it's only for individuals from certain countries um, designated under the E2 treaties. So some of the countries that are not eligible for that, um, uh, for that particular opportunity include India and China, 
which are actually um, among the countries that send us the most people who become entrepreneurs. So this is, this is another problem. We've also heard about um, students becoming entrepreneurs. There's been a lot of focus on that uh, in the past couple of years, in particular thinking about startup visas and do we want to extend startup visas to people who graduate from US higher education programs. There's this op optional practical training that people who get STEM degrees can have this extended time um, to remain in the US for up to two and a half years. Those individuals can, in fact, self-employ. So they, they can choose to become self-employed. But in fact, when we actually look at the data among all college-educated US residents, the, and looking specifically at those who found businesses, only 4% um, are still on student visas. So as, was, as Magnus was just pointing out, um, the growth rate of entrepreneurship among immigrants has also been positive over the past, uh, past several years. Um, in 2013, immigrants were almost twice as likely as native US citizens uh, to start businesses. And Rob Fairley's work has been showing you know, about one in four new entrepreneurs are immigrants. Um, some additional work is showing that a fa fairly large fraction of the high growth in high tech firms had at least one foreign born founding member. And moreover, those that had at least one foreign born founding men member tended to also perform better than those that only had native US citizens among their founders. Looking also to the venture-backed companies that actually go on to be public. So again, these are you know, the, the companies that, seem, that would be high growth that are most likely to contribute to US GDP um, in larger ways. One in three founders of these companies that went public from 2006 to 2012 um, were also immigrants. So others have looked in the past. In particular, there's a couple papers by Jenny Hunt looking at this gap between college-educated native US citizens and foreign born in patenting related outcomes and other innovative activities and also in self-employment. And a great deal of the difference really can be explained by differences in their fields of study. If we know that people with engineering degrees among the college educated are more likely to become self-employed, to become business owners, and in addition to that, those who are foreign born are more likely to take degrees in engineering, then it only makes sense you know, that, that, um, that they that the foreign born would have a higher propensity than to, um, to become business owners or self-employed. But then there's still a fairly large residual that we haven't yet explained um, when we only are looking at those fields of degree. Now, as I mentioned, you know, some of the, the discussion around the startup visas was specifically looking at students, people who came here to the US to study and after they graduate, trying to figure out some way to allow them to stay if they wish to do a startup company. So in my research, I was specifically interested to look and see whether we find any differences among foreign-born who took degrees in the United States versus those who are trained abroad. There is some, some prior evidence suggesting that uh, foreign students who, who get degrees here in the US do contribute more than those who are trained abroad um, to innovative activities in the country. Um, patents with US-educated foreign-born inventors as opposed to foreign-born invent lead inventors who were trained abroad are significantly more likely to be commercialized. Um, a lot of the US high-tech firms where we find out that there are foreign-born founders, um, in a lot of cases, those individuals were also US trained. 
There is a potential downside, though. Um, you know, it might sound like we want to then just open the doors and say, let's, let's have as many foreign students as possible because it seems that they are the most likely to become entrepreneurs. And if having more entrepreneurs is the goal, then maybe there's where we want to focus. But there is some research suggesting that increasing foreign student visas may actually have some unintended consequences for the participation of women in STEM fields. So this is, this is one area that we need to think about more is sort of, you know, given, given that everything is not happening in a static world, it's not, um, you know, introductory economics where we hold all else equal, as was talked about this morning, because all else is not held equal, we do need to consider possible downstream effects of some of the things that are going on. So in order to try to parse the rest of the reasons, to try to figure out what the rest of the reasons are beyond fields of study for why foreign-born are more likely to um, engage in entrepreneurship. In addition to the usual sort of demographic things that we could be looking at, um, looking at whether they trained in the US versus training abroad, I'm going to suggest one additional one. So I'm going to ask you to do this sort of a little bit backwards here and look at this chart from right to left. Some of the stuff isn't going to be very surprising. In fact, Brink was just saying earlier that one of the things that we expect, we know that business owners, we know that entrepreneurs, you know, stereotypically are supposed to be more risk tolerant. They're less, supposed to be less risk averse. They're taking risks um, almost by definition. Interestingly, though, when we think about foreign born who come to the US, they too must be more risk tolerant, especially if they're coming here specifically for um, for, for education or for work reasons, as opposed to, say, family reunification programs and that sort of thing. So it is perhaps unsurprising that we find that foreign-born um, workers in the United States are more likely to be risk tolerant in the, uh, looking at 2012 general social survey data. But business owners are even more risk tolerant than are um, regularly employed. And this is both for foreign-born and for native US citizens. We also see, again, perhaps unsurprisingly, fitting with, with uh, our vision of, of what an entrepreneur is and does and prefers, we see that business owners tend to value autonomy. They value personal freedom and having a greater degree of independence. And again, though, we find that for foreign-born, this is even more pronounced among foreign-born business owners. Now, the final piece, though, and this is what's going to lead into some of the analyses that I'm about to show you, is looking at um, this, the bars that are furthest over here to the left. One of the questions in the general social survey asks to what extent the person says that they would, that they, their preference is they, they find that um, success is very important to them, that they want to be recognized for their achievements. And the thing that's really interesting here is that regular employed native US citizens versus foreign born, not statistically significantly different. Native US business owners, not statistically significantly different from regular employed. But foreign born business owners are much more likely than these other groups, over half of them say, that they wish to be recognized for their achievements. So this is going to bring us to our research questions. We want to know why is it that college-educated foreign-born workers have higher rates of entrepreneurship than sim similarly educated native US citizens. So after we've controlled for field of degree, what else explains the remaining gap? We also want to know why is it that some groups of foreign-born workers have a greater propensity towards business ownership or STEM entrepreneurship than others do? 
And in particular, we're going to be looking to see whether relative cultural support, that is to say, whether cultural support for entrepreneurship in their country of origin relative to the US matters in whether they, once they come to the US, are likely to become entrepreneurs. I won't go too much into the weeds on, on the econometric estimation here, but we are using um, survey-weighted binomial logistic regression. We're predicting two different outcomes. One is we're predicting business ownership versus other types, all other types of employment. And then we're going to um, predict specifically business ownership um, in STEM businesses, so science, technology, engineering, and mathematics-based businesses, which tend to be the higher growth high-tech um, firms that we were discussing earlier. And we're going to be looking at those versus all other STEM occupations to try to model more carefully the choice that individuals in STEM um, are, and trained in STEM are likely to be making. Some of the explanatory variables we'll be looking at, we'll be looking at citizenship and visa status, whether somebody immigrated as a child or immigrated as an adult, if they immigrated as an adult, whether it was for higher education or for work or some other reason, or whether they're on a foreign temporary resident visa. We'll be looking at several different human capital um, variables, um, including the bachelor's field of degree, demographics, and country of origin characteristics. All of these um, also have interaction terms, which allow us to look and see and test whether there's going to be any, whether there's any statistically significant difference across groups in the importance of any of these explanatory variables. The data are coming from the National Science Foundation's um, CSAT database, the restricted use file. This is nationally representative data. I have um, over 86,000 observations in my data set of US residents under age 76 who have bachelor's or higher degrees. This combines both the National Survey of College Graduates and also the Survey of Doctorate Recipients. And as a result, it over, um, is actually oversampling on US-trained PhDs to give us a little more detail um, on those individuals. For the um, cultural support variables, those are coming from the Global Entrepreneurship Monitors Adult Population Survey. This is conducted in over 100 countries. Typically, when it is conducted in a country in a given year, there are 2,000 or more um, individuals responding in each country. And the, kinds, and the questions that we're specifically looking at, the responses we're specifically looking at to judge you know, to what extent this country is supportive of entrepreneurship is the share of individuals who agree with um, these two statements. Number one, in my country, so if they're in, uh, conducting this, say, in France, they would ask, in France, is it true that most people consider starting a new business a desirable career choice? And then, again, if the country were France, in France, is it true that those successful at starting a new business have a high level of status and respect? So this gets to that, um, that idea of wanting to have more recognition. Overall, descriptively, one of the things that we notice when we're looking at the college-educated um, US residents in the workforce. Now, here I've, I'm actually building up the bars. Starting at the bottom, the darkest bar at the bottom, is the business owners um, that aren't necessarily those high-growth startups. And then directly above them are the high-growth startups. One thing that's interesting here is looking at foreign temporary residents who are not from E2 treaty countries. They are very unlikely to be business owners. They are extremely unlikely to be unincorporated self-employed um, for, for the reasons that we were discussing earlier with respect to the visas. Um, but if they do start a company, it is much more likely um, to be one of these high-growth startup ventures. We also note 
that foreign temporary residents and immigrants who were trained abroad have a higher rate of employment in startup firms. And this is another topic that I'll come back to in a little bit. But one of the things that we need to be thinking about if we're trying to grow these companies is not just who's going to found them, you know, who's, who's going to take the financial risk of starting the business, but also who's going to go work for them, who's going to be part of the founding team even if they don't have that ownership interest, who's going to be willing to take that risk with respect to their own um, employment of going to a startup company. Can you see the colors here? Yeah, OK. So whereas the previous slide was showing you, as you add up the percentages, was showing you among those who immigrated as children, what percentage are business owners, what percentage are working for startup ventures, and so on. In this one, we're looking at, we're comparing the full sample and what shares of them fall into each of these categories, then looking at business owners, then looking at STEM business owners. So overall, the foreign-born, which is the entire height of that, um, of that bar, the foreign-born are a bit under 20% of the college-educated workforce in our full sample. But among business owners, it gets closer to 20%. And we see that some of that, a lot of that, is being driven by those who immigrated as, adult for, as adults for work. And a little bit, but not very much, um, difference between those who immigrated as adults for higher education versus the, the, uh, the general population. Where we see the higher education thing really come out is in the final column when we're looking at STEM business owners. STEM business owners, um, you know, the, there's a very high share, 10% of them versus less than 5% of, of the population as a whole. 10% of those are individuals who immigrated to the United States as adults um, it probably is young adults, to pursue higher education degrees. The other thing that we want to look at is the, the E2 treaty mechanism, um, treaty investor visa mechanism versus those who would not be eligible um, for, for, those, for those mechanisms. One of the things that we observe here is if you look at employees of established organizations in the United States, 45% of those um, among adult immigrants, 45% of those are from non-E2 treaty countries. But a higher share, 52% of business owners um, among adult immigrants are from non-E2 treaty countries. But then when we look at foreign temporary residents, now again, foreign temporary residents who are not from E2 treaty countries have very few mechanisms by which they can become self-employed. There, as then we would expect, um, only 27% of the business owners who are foreign temporary residents are from these non-E2 treaty countries, even though, again, if they do found a business, it tends to be very high growth. So these are the results from the logistic regression model. What I'm doing is I'm predicting the probability in this first column of someone being a business owner. And all of these are um, looking at the changes in probability versus native US citizens. So for example, if someone immigrated as a child, um, from they have uh, six percentage points higher rate of, or higher probability of business ownership than do native US citizens who are otherwise similar looking at demographics, looking at what their degrees were. Um, there are about 20 explanatory variables and interactions with all of these um, in the model. I'm just showing you these, these sort of key explanatory variables. And again, as we expect about, uh, well, the, the foreign temporary residents who are not from E2 treaty countries 
are really much less likely um, than all other groups to be participating. Another thing that's interesting is looking at those who immigrated as children. Although in the first column we see they're more likely to become business owners, once we control for the country that they, um, what country they came from, which is the, the middle column, they're no longer any different than native US citizens in terms of their rate of participation. The main differences we see are looking at all business owners versus STEM business owners. We find that those who immigrated as adults for higher education are more likely to be both business owners overall and STEM business owners in particular once we control for other demographic characteristics. This is in contrast with the descriptive statistics. And this is just saying that, yes, there are demographic characteristics and other things that once we control for them, um, help to explain some of the reason why it looked like those who were US trained had a lower rate. Um, that effect goes away. So it, really, it does become a robust result that this higher, educa this higher education advantage um, for adult immigrants. I guess I should. Uh... OK, so now this lack of cultural support thing. The main thing here that we're looking at, the black line going horizontally across says is the rate of uh, business ownership among native US citizens. And what we find here is, especially for those who immigrated as adults, we do in fact see this strong positive gradient saying that so the, the um, x-axis here is lack of cultural support for entrepreneurship. So any number above zero on the x-axis is saying that the home country is less supportive than the United States is. Anything that's to the left of zero, any of the negative numbers, is they're coming from a country um, among these, one example is Australia, that um, where they, there's actually a higher rate of cultural support for entrepreneurship. And what we find is this interesting thing where if you come from a country that has very low rates of cultural support for entrepreneurship, you are much more likely to become a business owner when you come to the United States. The flip side of this is, if you are someone who chose to immigrate to the United States from one of these countries that's very supportive of, of entrepreneurship, you're actually less likely than even a native US citizen to become an entrepreneur. So the people who choose to come from those countries are sort of selecting um, to come uh, based on not having a desire effectively to, to become entrepreneurs. So to wrap up, we know that college-educated workers, um, among college-educated workers, immigrants who come to the US as adults are significantly more likely than native US citizens to become business owners. And we also know that probability of business ownership is higher for immigrants who come, as I said, from these countries that have relatively lower, so relative to the US, lower cultural support for entrepreneurship. But among all these different groups of immigrants, we find that those who came to the US for higher education are most likely to become STEM business owners, to found high growth entrepreneurial ventures, um, and actually once we control for all the demographic and other characteristics, just to become business owners more broadly. What we don't know is whether this is selection or causality. Well, this is an open question. We don't know whether immigrants who come to the US for higher education are more entrepreneurial to begin with, and so we're just seeing that effect or if there's something about the US higher education system that is making them become more entrepreneurial. We can't tell that um, from these analyses. But to some extent, from a policy perspective, it doesn't matter. We can't randomize people or you know, to, to either go to um, 
go to US higher education programs or not, um, or force people to go to US higher education programs or not. But what we can do is decide whether we want to admit more people um, and allow them to stay who came on student visas. That's the policy tool that we have available. And we know that that group, for whatever reason, seems more likely to um, engage in, in entrepreneurship. And the thing I'll leave you with is, we were talking about um, all of these business owners so far. One of the things, though, that we need in order to have these businesses grow are people who are willing to be um, employees of these new ventures. Disproportionately, um, immigrants who have degrees from um, foreign institutions who come to the US, especially if they have graduate degrees, degrees in STEM fields, they are disproportionately becoming employees of these startup companies. At the same time, though, it's very difficult for startup companies to get H-1B visas. Um, they're much smaller. They have a lot less uh, sort of the returns to scale, both in searching for candidates and also in the application process, arguably is favoring larger firms. And so this is, I think, probably the next challenge that we're going to face um, beyond the startup visa. Thank you very much. Um, it's time for questions now, and I'll get the ball rolling. Uh, first, for Magnus, um, I'm familiar with the reasons why we would expect foreign-born people to uh, be more likely to be self-employed or start new businesses, uh, but the idea that the percentage uh, has, has been rising over time, uh, that uh, was new to me, and I don't really, uh, not, doesn't immediately uh, <clears throat> Uh, seem obvious to me why that would be the case, and in particular, why the big divergence after the Great Recession. Uh, you could imagine that uh, deteriorating economic conditions are pushing for you know, pushing people out of jobs and into uh, you know, consulting gigs and or just uh, uh, some kind of necessity entrepreneurship. But why why are native-borns less likely to be self-employed since the Great Recession, and while foreign-borns have uh, continued to rise? I, I think that that is the big question. I think uh, that's a little bit disappointing when you Any look at these. Any theories out there? Um, you know, I, I would be a little bit cautious. What, what we do know is that with the Great Recession, there were big changes to the economy. The, the structure of the economy changes. There were certain sectors that were highly impacted by, by the Great Recession, and many of those jobs went away. And some of those are certainly in sectors that had, you know, a good number of, of um, uh, self-employed workers. Um, so to what extent that is what's going on, it's, it's unclear. I think from my perspective, you take this step and you look at some descriptive statistics and it's, it's not particularly satisfactory because you don't have good answers to necessarily what goes on. But I don't think unless we actually put forth these, uh, these numbers to just show what's going on, uh, what it does at least, it, it, it addresses, it raises this issue to say that, well, there's something here that's puzzling that we're not sure what's going on, and hopefully it'll draw more attention to that issue. I don't know to what extent, if we look at the, on the immigrant side, their compositional effects to the immigrant population that is either staying here or coming here. How is that playing out? And, um, you know, it's, it's just showing, to me what it shows is, we ought to take a much closer look at this and see what is behind these changes. So I'm behind your question 100%, okay. and I would love to learn more about that okay. as well. So, um, And 
for Meg, uh, given your research into why high-skill immigrant entrepreneurs are entrepreneurial and do the things they do and are more likely to, uh, to do those things than native-born uh, uh, folks, um, what are the implications for public policy? That is, can you, <clears throat> is there, can you come up with sort of one policy change that would be uh, sort of best calculated to, uh, to bring in more would-be entrepreneurs? So what, what policy lever is, is most likely to generate the biggest bang for the buck in terms of upping immigrant high-skill entrepreneurship? So I think there are, there are a few pieces to this. We know that for entrepreneurship in general, for business ownership in general, you're more likely to both start a company and also to start a successful company when you have more years of experience. And in a lot of cases, that's experience specifically working for another startup company. Working in a startup company helps prepare you to have a successful startup company. And yet, a lot of the, the sort of startup visa kind of conversation was around having, um, you know, extending visas to people who had just finished their, their schooling, who had not yet had that kind of experience. So if we want to have successful foreign-born entrepreneurs, having some mechanism where they can spend some time actually sort of apprenticing effectively in, um, in, in another startup company, um, working for entrepreneurs, having that experience, you know, gaining that human capital, it seems like it would be really important. Now, some of that maybe could happen with F1 OPT, but honestly, two and a half years isn't a very long time. So maybe what, we're, what we need to consider, and this kind of gets back to that last slide, is how are we going to make it easier for foreign-born individuals, whether they were trained in the US or not, um, to get that experience so that they can be more likely to be successful? Uh, we have time to take uh, a couple of questions from the audience. Uh, just raise your hand and someone will come with a mic, uh, give your name and affiliation and uh, a uh, brief pithy question right here. In Emily Fetch with the Coffin Foundation. And I was just wondering if you could speak to um, the Obama administration's new proposed rule for a new pathway for immigrant entrepreneurs and your thoughts about it. Um, so I have not read it through in detail yet. The main things that I did note, um, just skimming over it uh, a few days ago, was that there is this one, one of the things that had been talked about that, that they did go ahead with is this idea that if you manage to attract funding um, to your company, well, that's actually one of the rules. So you have to manage to attract funding to the company. And this was really important because some of the um, previous mechanisms that have existed, including for um, green cards, but also for the E2, you have to show revenues sooner. And for high-tech companies, that wasn't very practical. If you have a, lot, a long R&D process, um, attracting venture capital was one of the things that had been suggested. So that at least looks like something promising to try to um, encourage more of those high-tech companies that do have a longer R&D and D process to stay here in the United States and to grow here in the United States. Gentlemen, there. Your mic's coming. Other way. Oh, <laughs> for me. Thank you very much. Uh, Fred Trays, Remy, Regional Economic Models. And this question is for Dr. Bloom Kahoot. Uh, you're saying uh, from uh, low entrepreneurship companies that come to set up businesses, and it would just paint more of a picture of like, which are those countries? Is it 
like Russia and South Africa, and then they come to start up a business here, and which would be the high entrepreneurship con countries. But which countries have low cultural support for entrepreneurship, which have high? Okay, so um, two of them in particular that had higher than the United States, and, and so maybe we can think about learning something from um, that I came across before, Canada and Australia. Now, Canada being our neighbor and, and with NAFTA and everything and also being English-speaking, there's a lot of confounders going on there. Um, but we might look to those countries and see and sort of see what, what, uh, what they might be doing differently given that they um, do seem to have this sort of higher level of cultural support and acceptance for, for entrepreneurship as a career path. The lower ones, I mean, there are a lot of them. The you know, US is actually fairly high. Um, I believe the, the rate of support for those statements that I was saying was on the order of 80%, which is why you saw the, the scale going to negative 20 and then, and then on up. The ones where there's a big gap, um, one example is Japan. Um, Japan has uh, considerably less support for, for entrepreneurship. Um, but I'd have to, I can point you to the, the GEM data if you'd like afterwards, and, and you can get the full list there. So since India and China are such fertile sources of, of foreign-born high-tech entrepreneurs, where, where do they fit in the rankings? So they, they were definitely um, further away from, from the zero point. Yeah. Okay. All right, time for one more question right here. Thank you very much. Uh, Peter Matlin from Cornell University. Question I have is, and I'm directing it at, at both of the panelists, uh, whether or not there's any evidence of differences uh, between native-born startup entrepreneurs and foreign-born uh, startup entrepreneurs in terms of where they access their capital. And in particular, are there any constraints that are unique to foreign-born um, entrepreneurs in terms of accessing finance from conventional sources such as banks? I think, um, if I'm recalling, I haven't looked at it my, myself, but um, you can look at the work of Alicia Robb and, and, uh, and Rob Fairley, who's been looking at the using the Kaufman survey. We have some people here from Kaufman who can speak probably a little bit more to that. If I recall it correctly, um, I think that you know, we all come in with the notion that there would be big differences, but if I recall it correctly, they did not see strong evidence of, of differences in the sources used for funding. I'm sure there is also great heterogeneity across the various groups uh, in terms of that, but, um, but there is research that has looked at, at that particular issue. I think my answer would be pretty much the same. It seems like there shouldn't be any difference um, for permanent, for naturalized U.S. citizens and legal permanent residents um, to get access. One could understand banks being perhaps a little bit less likely to lend to foreign temporary residents. But um, like Magnus said, uh, Rob Fairley has a paper um, that was looking specifically at, at this issue. And my recollection is the same as his, that um, there didn't seem to be any real difference um, it, for native U.S. versus foreign-born in terms of um, their, the, the financial capital that they were bringing to, to the enterprise. Okay, with that, we're going to wrap up this panel. I'd like to thank both of the panelists for their contributions, and I believe there's a break coming up now before the next panel starts up.